right, I think we're ready to go ahead and get started for tonight. Uh, let me be the first to say welcome to the fall conference for Amarillo Reformed Fellowship this year. My name is Blake Johnson. Uh, if you don't know me, I am the associate pastor at Evangelical Fellowship Church, and it's on behalf of the Amarillo Reformed Fellowship that I want to thank you for joining us tonight and tomorrow. Uh, we live in times of great upheaval and cultural revolution, and as we think about that, as we think about what's going on around us, it makes us especially thankful to have access to the kind of teaching that we're going to be receiving tonight and this weekend. And so we're grateful for what the Lord is doing here for us in Amarillo. Uh, there are three things that we need to cover before we invite Dr. Burke up to come and teach us. Uh, first, a, a word of explanation about who's putting on this conference. Uh, we're very thankful to God uh, that he has blessed the efforts of the Amarillo Reformed Fellowship. That's the third time I've used that title here. It may be the first time that you've heard that. Uh, and you may be wondering what, what that is. Well, the, the Amarillo Reformed Fellowship is a ministerial alliance in the Amarillo area. It's a collection of, of pastors uh, and churches from different backgrounds, different denominational affiliations, uh, but united by a passion for the pure gospel as understood through the Reformed tradition. Uh, the churches that have come together to put on this conference for you this weekend are, in alphabetical order, Christ Covenant Presbyterian Church of Amarillo, Evangelical Fellowship Church of Amarillo, First Baptist Church of Canyon, and Westview Christian Church of Amarillo. And what the pastors of those churches and other churches do on a monthly basis is we get together, pray together, take time to hear what the Lord is doing uh, in our churches, and uh, we also work together to bless the Amarillo area and the Texas Panhandle, in particular with conferences like these. This is, this is our great desire. Um, and you can go on to the website of the fellowship. It's www.arfellowship.org. And there you will be able to hear and download all of the audio from all of the past conferences that have been put on for the past several years. And that is a, that is a resource you should take advantage of. There's a lot of great material on that website. So I would commend that to you. Um, and if you're here and you're encouraged by this weekend, you're informed and, uh, and feel that you, you and your family are being equipped and you would like to help us do these things in the future, we want to make it possible for you to partner with us in this. Um, and so what we have behind you and behind me in the two hallways here are some baskets that will be out and available during the breaks and after the sessions at the end of each day. Uh, if you would like to donate to future conferences, we would appreciate that. It would be very, we'd be very thankful. Um, so please know that that's available, and um, if you feel led to do that, that would be that would be fantastic. So thank you for that. Um, second, there's a couple of just logistical details for the weekend here. Um, there will be uh, breaks between sessions, and behind me in the hallway, you probably saw these as you came in. There's going to be some tables there with water and coffee available for you. And um, we've been told it's fine to bring the water bottles back in here with, with lids, but if we could keep the coffee in the hallway behind me, that would be, that would be great. Our hosts would appreciate that. And um, second logistical item here, tomorrow we will have sessions before lunch in the morning and session after lunch. We're on our own for, for lunch in the break. Uh, but if you are an area pastor, elder, church staff member, spouse of any of the above, uh, we would invite you to come to just downstairs here on site to a, uh, a, a Q&A lunch with Dr. Burke, uh, catered here. There will be food available. We'd love to have you join us for that. Um, I'm sure we'll announce this tomorrow, but we essentially will go down the stairs behind the, in the hallway and just head whatever direction that is. Is that east? South? Head south? That's what I meant to say, head south. Um, until you run out of space and there's a big room there and that's where we'll have, have that Q&A lunch. So for, uh, for pastors, church staff, uh, please join us tomorrow for lunch if you're, if you're able to do that. Third and finally, uh, there are many thank yous in order for something like what's happening this weekend. Thank you to the many volunteers who have been giving their time to, to make this possible. You were doubtless, hopefully, greeted 
by a volunteer as you came in. There will be volunteers serving us drinks and a number of volunteers working in the background uh, for this event. Too many to name. You know who you are. Uh, but thank you for the time that you're giving us to, to help put this on. Um, thank you to our hosts, the Paramount Baptist Church, for allowing us to, to uh, use the facility. Uh, it's just a beautiful room to do this in. Uh, looking at the chandelier earlier, I was thinking, I'm, I'm glad I'm not going to be sitting in some of the front rows. I'll, I'll be imagining with that one. But it's a beautiful place, and we're, we're grateful that they're allowing us to, to, uh, to share it with them. Uh, we have put up many, many flyers. Uh, notifying, giving all details for this event this weekend in Amarillo and beyond. And um, those flyers were printed and donated to the cause by Trinity Baptist Church. And uh, we thank them for, for, uh, for serving us in that way. And finally, we're especially thankful to the CBMW, the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, represented this weekend by Dr. Burke. Uh, for their tireless work in fighting for the cause of God's word. And I mean fighting on the front lines today. It is such, a, in, such an encouragement to our hearts to know that God has put people in these places to serve the church. There's much that could be said about their work. You could go to cbmw.org and read all about what that organization is, what sorts of things they're engaged in. Um, it'll suffice, I think, to list out for you from their website what is at stake in the stands that they are taking and the battles that they're waging. They list their six things at stake. The authority of Scripture is at stake. The health of the home is at stake. The health of the church is at stake. Our worship is at stake. Bible translations are at stake. The advance of the gospel is at stake. And so for their work in these areas, we are very, very grateful to God. And that leads me to introduce to you our speaker for this weekend, because we have with us the president of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, Dr. Denny Burke. Denny Burke holds a PhD from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. His articles have been published in many reputable journals, including the Journal for the Study of the New Testament and the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society. He is the author of a number of books, some of which are more exciting than others. For example, he has authored a book entitled Articular Infinitives in the Greek of the New Testament, which is a very interesting book, doubtless. I don't know if you call it, if you could call it exciting. I haven't read that book, Dr. Burke. Um, but probably other books more exciting than that. As, as for those other books, um, I'll just mention for the purposes of this weekend uh, a couple of them. He's, uh, the book Transforming Homosexuality and uh, What is the Meaning of Sex. Dr. Burke is a man who wears many hats. He's a busy guy. He is a professor of biblical studies at Boyce College. He's a pastor at Kenwood Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. And as we've mentioned already, he is the president of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Dr. Burke, thank you for being with us this weekend. And please come now and share with us. Please. Well, good evening to all of you. I kind of wondered if anybody would be here given that I'm in Texas and it's Friday night. Um, I grew up the son of a football coach, and we lived most, I lived most of my life as a, a youngster in between Louisiana and Texas, and so we were accounted for on Friday nights. So I'm impressed that you are here um, knowing that. Uh, let me, I just want to say uh, thank you all for having me here. It, it's a real privilege to be with all of you and that you would come out on a night like tonight to, to talk about these things. And um, I, I just want to say a few words about the organization I represent before I, I get into um, the, the first session here. I'm just curious, how many of you have ever heard of CBMW, the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood? Okay, how many of you have not? Okay. <clears throat> so let me briefly kind of explain to you what we do 
And why in the world I'm all the way out in Amarillo, Texas tonight talking about these things. So in the 60s and 70s, within evangelicalism, there began to be kind of a drift, even among people who profess uh, to believe in biblical authority on the issue, uh, issues of feminism and roles of women and men within the church and, and within the home. And there were um, some evangelicals that were just sort of following the spirit of the age uh, through the 70s and 80s especially. And that led a group of men and women to come together in 1987 to um, sort of plant a flag in the ground for evangelicals and say, you know, we need to say what the scripture teaches and we need to call our brothers and sisters back to this, this standard. And it was in 1987 in Danvers, Massachusetts, um, John Piper, uh, Wayne Grudem, and a handful of others got together and they wrote uh, this document called the Danvers Statement. Anybody here ever heard of the Danvers Statement? I'm glad at least some of you have. The Danvers Statement was, was basically, a, it's like a little confessional statement defining what manhood and womanhood is in, with particular concern for their roles in the church and in the home. And it's, it, it, it basically teaches the biblical teaching we're going to talk about tomorrow morning about headship, that God has called men to lead their families, wives to affirm that leadership, that God has called um, qualified men as pa to be pastors of churches. And so this little group of people got together and they came up with the Danvers Statement expressing these, these convictions. That statement led to uh, an explosion of publications and it also led to our organization. It became the founding uh, vision for CBMW. And you can go read it if you go to our, our, our website. There was a book that came out in 1991 called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. It was edited by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. And it became kind of the Bible for the perspective that we um, have been known for, which is called complementarianism. I'm, I'm, I'm just wanting to get oriented here. How many of you have ever heard the word complementarianism? Okay, good. So uh, we're not starting from zero. Um, so it's, it's sort of the, the standard book that people go to to define what complementarianism is all about. Well, since 1987, um, some things have stayed the same, but a lot of things have really changed. Um, one of the things that's, that stayed the same is that we're still having issues with manhood and womanhood. Um, but the things that have changed are the issues that we're facing having to do with manhood and womanhood. And over the last five to ten years, when we get, at least I've been president of CBMW for two years, and 90 plus percent of the calls that I get at CBMW for conferences or resources, it's, it's not about what we wrote about in Danvers, in the Danvers statement. It's been about homosexuality and transgenderism. That's, that's what it's been about. What, what is the meaning of marriage? What's it mean to be a man and a woman with respect to these, these other challenges that are coming up? So in, uh, those are the, people just assume that the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood should know something about those things, and those are the challenges that the churches are facing today. And so in 2017, our group, CBMW, convened another meeting. So it was 30 years later from Danvers. And we convened another meeting in Nashville, Tennessee, and we brought together a, a, a larger group of church leaders and scholars um, to come together and to draft another statement, this time one dealing with those issues that speak explicitly about sexuality and about uh, what it means to be a man and a woman made in, in the image of God, uh, explicitly ex addressing the issues of transgenderism and homosexuality. And the result of that was an, another document called the Nashville Statement. Did anybody hear, ever hear of the Nashville Statement? Some of you heard of that. So that was our group that, that, that put that together and, and ratified that. This ended up being even uh, a more, uh, having a wider immediate impact than, than even the Danvers Statement because so many church leaders and pastors came together to sign on to this, this vision. If you haven't read it, you can read it uh, online, but it's essentially um, defining what, what the Bible says about these things against some of the revisionists that are, that are on uh, offer today. And so our organization, CBMW, is now Danvers Statement, and it's now the Nashville Statement. And we exist to spread 
that vision, the theological vision of those two statements and to try to equip churches and Christian ministries to be able to speak biblically about these things. And so the thing that I found as I've been out speaking about these things and teaching about these things is there is so much confusion in the pews about, the, about this. Uh, people don't have all their ducks in a row on, on, on these things. And, a lot, and sometimes church leadership doesn't. So th- that's, ex- that's why we're doing this. And that, that's why our ministry exists. I am so um, happy to talk to you more about CBMW if you want afterward or in, in between sessions. But I want you to have a little bit of an orientation about who we are and what we do and why we do what we do. Now, before we launch into this session, let me open us up with a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for the way that you have loved us and that you have sent your son for us. To die for us and to be raised for us. So that we could have forgiveness of sins and eternal life through him. Father, we confess that we are but dust. We are weak and sinful. And we need you. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak to us now, that you would be here with us now by communicating with us through your word. So open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And Father, we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin tonight by telling you a story of a boy, 15-year-old boy, in, uh, who lived in Greensburg, Indiana, around uh, 2010. He was 15 years old. His name was Billy Lucas. And Billy Lucas was the target of relentless bullying in the school that he went to in Greensburg because he was out among his classmates as an openly gay high school student. So everybody in the school knew this about him. And so every day he would come to school and they would single him out for bullying and cruel tr- treatment. And, and the things that they did to him were just mean. They, um, on one occasion, one of Billy's classmates just came up behind, behind him when he wasn't looking and pulled his chair out from under him just so he'd fall on the floor. And everybody in the class just laughed at him while he sat there being humiliated. And as he was sitting there, shamed in front of his classmates, the person who pulled the chair out from under him looked down at him and told him that he should just go home and hang himself. And so for Billy, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. He decided he wasn't going to take it anymore. He went home and he decided that when he came back to school, he was going to fight back. He was not going to sit by passively for this anymore. So he came back to school And it was in September 2010, and he was ready. And like clockwork, his classmates started in on him again. And the way he responded this time was to stand up in the middle of the class and just he just let loose a string of obscenities against all the students who were who were bullying him. And his diatribe was so explicit and so open that um, he was the one who got caught doing this. He got called into the principal's office, and then he got suspended. From, from school. Billy was the son of a single mom and he lived alone with his mother on a farm. And that night after he got suspended, he went home and he made a call to 911. And he told the dispatcher, look, I'm, there, um, I'm making problems for my mother. You need to send somebody out here. He hangs up the phone. He goes outside, presumably to bring the horses back into the barn, and the dispatcher calls back to the house, and his mother picks up the phone. And the dispatcher says, I just got this strange call from your house. Is everything okay over there? And his mother says, yeah, everything's, everything's fine. She hangs up the phone. Then she goes outside and looks for Billy, and she goes to the barn, and sure enough, she found Billy. He had indeed taken his life. And so um, some major, as you can imagine, this thing hit the news and, and, and some major news outlets picked up the story of Billy Lucas's suicide and the news of, of what he had done spread actually all over the world. And there was a sex advice columnist named, named Dan Savage who picked up the story 
and he heard about Billy's suicide, and he decided to do something about it. And Sa- Dan Savage, the sex advice columnist, um, he's a gay man himself, and, and so he launches this YouTube channel called the It Gets Better Project. Just out of curiosity, anybody here hear of that, the It Gets Better Project? Um, and, and the point of the It Gets Better Project is very simple. It's, it's a place or it's a website on YouTube where gay adults upload videos of themselves telling their stories about how life gets better after high school. Their messages are aimed directly at the Billy Lucases of the world who are losing hope. And the message is pretty simple. Look, things may be hard right now, but just hang in there. After high school, you'll find a gay community and others who will affirm your sexuality. You can be married and adopt children and have a full life. It may be awful now while you're being bullied by your you know, classmates at high school, but it gets better. You don't have to take your own life. You just need to hang in there. And so what interested me about the It Gets Better project is what Sa- Dan Savage said motivated him to start the, the YouTube site. It turns out that Dan Savage was motivated in, in part by compassion for gay high school students, but then also he was motivated by anger towards Christians in particular. And so he wrote in his column uh, his reasons for starting the site, and he said this. He said, another gay teenager in another small town has killed himself. Hope you're pleased with yourselves, Tony Perkins, and all the other Christians out there who oppose anti-bullying programs and give actual Christians a bad name. You may know Tony Perkins as the leader of the Family Research Council, which is an evangelical uh, Christian group in Washington, D.C., Dan Savage says, hope you're happy with yourself, Tony Perkins, and all other Christians who hold this point of view. Then he says this, I wish I could have talked to this kid for five minutes. I wish I could have told Billy that it gets better. I wish I could have told him that however bad things were, however isolated and alone he was, it gets better. And so Dan Savage starts this YouTube channel, and in the first video, Dan Savage and his husband upload a video of themselves telling viewers how and why they have found a happy life, happy life together as a, a gay, married, gay married men who have now adopted their first child. At that time it was their, their first child and it was a little boy. And they offer themselves as living proof that it gets better. You don't have to take your own life if you're in that position. Now, what I want to talk to you about tonight is about how we as Christians are supposed to love people struggling with sexuality issues in a culture in which there are many voices like Dan Savage's. Dan Savage is just one voice. There are many voices like his. And there are many Billy Lucases. And if you're listening to the Dan Savages of the world, what they say is far different from what Scripture says about these things. And the fact is, if you live on planet Earth, you're going to encounter people who are struggling with homosexual sin. Perhaps there, there's some people in this room even right now who are struggling with that particular issue. But if you are a Christian, it's going to fall to you to speak truth and love into some very difficult situations. And the question that you are going to have to ask and answer between now and then is this. How are you going to speak? What are you going to say? Now, obviously, you want to speak biblically. But how do you do that when there are so many people saying that the Bible is not sufficient for the task? People are telling you that there are really only two options for you when it comes to communicating to people about these things. There's what I like to call the intolerance option and the tolerance option. The intolerance option is the idea that if you oppose homosexuality in any way, then you are intolerant of gay people as persons. You hate both homosexuality and homosexuals. You don't think they deserve basic respect as persons, and you think that they don't even deserve civil rights. 
And if your religion tells you that homosexuality is wrong, then you and your religion are bigoted. Because you promote hate against homosexuals. And so the intolerance option leads people to have that perspective about you. The other kind of attitude that people are telling you you can have is what we'll call the tolerance option. The tolerance option is the idea that the only way to show love and compassion to gay people is to recognize that homosexuality is morally acceptable. You must not only affirm that gay people have civil rights, but also that the lifestyle they're pursuing, the desires that they're feeling, that those things are good. And you have to affirm the persons and the lifestyle if you want to be truly tolerant. That's the tolerance option. And so the tolerance option and the intolerance option are regularly set before you as the only options that you have in relating to gay people that you may know in your life or in your family. And since none of us wants to be bigoted or hateful, there's a tremendous pressure in our culture right now to choose the tolerance option because none of us wants to be considered a bigot, right? But my question for you tonight is, are those really the only two options? If you had known Billy Lucas, and if you had had the opportunity to speak to him before he died, is it true that your only options were either to hate him or to affirm his homosexuality? This is a false choice. There is another option, and we'll call it the biblical option, and it also happens to be the one that's the most loving option. Because biblically defined, love is going to determine both what we speak and how we speak when we speak to all manner of sinners, including those that are dealing with sexuality issues. And so my concern this evening and really for the rest of, uh, of the weekend is really not how to fight the larger culture war that's going on, that has gone on over gay marriage and that we lost. Um, I think Christians have a role to play in that discussion. And uh, th that's just not my aim, okay, for this, this, uh, this weekend. My aim is for us to consider how we as Christians are to address the gospel to those who are experiencing same-sex attraction and who, who ident and who identify as gay. That's what our, our goal is here. Now Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 14 through 15 says this. It says that we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So this just means that we're called to speak the truth in love. There's a, there's a whole bunch that we could say about what it means to speak the truth in love. But as we look at this, this issue, I want to focus on three things that have to be on any list of how we ought to speak the truth in love to the Billy Lucases of the world. And so, so for, for the rest of this uh, first session here, I've got, I've got three points that we're going through. This is how we have to speak. We have to speak the truth. We have to speak the gospel. And we have to speak humility. Speak the truth. Speak the gospel. And speak humility. Now, these three points correspond to the three texts in the New Testament that speak explicitly about homosexuality. Okay, those, those texts are Romans 1, 26-27. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses, uh, uh, verse 10. So the first thing is to speak the truth. Now, if you've you got a Bible, open it up to Romans chapter 1 in verses 26 to 27. Look what Paul says here. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions... For their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, according to this text, both men and women who abandon the natural function of sexuality to engage in same-sex acts are committing sin. That much is clear. What's interesting about this 
is that Paul mentions men and women. This is one of the only places in, it's the only place in the Bible, um, but it's one, of the, it's one of the rare places in ancient literature where you see references to female homosexuality. But here it is in, in Romans 1. And he says if they're engaging in same-sex acts, it's, it's clearly sin. Now, I'm bringing this up because you think, okay, that's a slam dunk. We know what that means. We can all comprehend this. Well, not everybody comprehends this. And in fact, there are people out there who are trying to um, uh, revise what has been um, the church's 2,000-year-old understanding of this text. There are some who will tell you today that this text doesn't mean what you think it means. And it doesn't mean that because the word natural is not what you think it means. There are some who will tell you that when Paul talks about doing something against nature or abandoning the natural function, they'll tell you that nature refers to sexual orientation of, in some sense. And that this verse only contem condemns people who participate in same-sex activity that have a heterosexual orientation. And it, it, the argument is they didn't even really know about ori sexual orientation. But it's talking about nature in terms of what you're naturally attracted to. So if you have a heterosexual orientation, it's not a sin for those who, uh, if you have a heterosexual orientation and you're burning in your desire for people of the same sex, then that would be wrong for you. But according to this argument, if you have a homosexual orientation, that wouldn't necessarily be wrong for you because that would be according to your nature. And the Bible doesn't necessarily know about orientation like we do now. And so therefore the Bible's not condemning homosexual orientation. Do you see the argument here? And so you'll hear people today in Christian ministries. Um, you will see them writing books based on the Bible trying to tell you that that's what this text means. And so therefore... Romans 1, which actually happens to be the, the most important uh, text on homosexuality in the New Testament, it doesn't mean what the church has always thought it to mean. Now, here's the problem with this. When Paul talks about what's natural and what's according to nature, um, that's not really what he's talking about, is it? Um, for Paul, nature is not defined by one's personal orientation, whatever that may be. Nature is defined by God's intention at creation. <clears throat> That's what Paul means by nature. So for Paul, what's natural is defined by what we see in the Garden of Eden. Before the, before the fall, before there was any sin in the world. What do you see there? You see one man and one woman in a covenanted heterosexual union. Any other kind of union is unnatural and sinful in Paul's way of thinking. So when women or men exchange the natural function, which is heterosexual relations within the covenant of marriage, they are committing, Paul says, indecent acts in verse 27. So it's, if you understand what Paul means by nature, it's very clear that homosexual acts are against nature. Okay, And, and Paul is saying that. But this is not the only thing that he's saying here. He's not just saying that homosexual acts are bad. Notice at verse 26, he says, for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. Did you catch that? Men, in verse 26, burned in their desire towards one another. Now, I'm pointing this out because there are some people who will tell you that although homosexual behavior is sinful, same-sex desire is not sinful. Now, in the second session, we're going to spend a whole session talking about this. But I'll just give you a preview right now. Here's a verse that's telling you that's not the case. It's not just homosexual behavior that's the problem. It's also homosexual desire that is the problem. And it, this text specifies that God has given them over not, over, not merely to the deeds, but to the desire that leads to the deeds. So this is the point, though, where things are, get, are getting a little dicey today within um, evangelical circles. And I say that because um, you're seeing um, teachers, um, preachers, pastors even sometimes, get more and more um, vague about what the Scripture is teaching about our sexual desires and sexual desires.
deeds. There is a, a book um, titled God and the Gay Christian by Matthew Vines. Did anybody see that book? Matthew Vines. It came out in 2014. It's called God and the Gay Christian. And this book, when it hit, it made a big splash. And the reason is because Matthew Vines, unlike uh, liberal, more liberal scholars, openly liberal scholars of the past, those guys would just come up and say, you know what, we know what the Bible says, but it's wrong. Okay, Paul says that homosexuality is a sin, but he's just wrong. The liberal guys from the past decades, they don't mind saying that because they don't believe in biblical authority. Okay, Matthew Vines writes a book in 2014 addressed at the popular level. He says, oh, no, 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 I believe in biblical authority. I believe the Bible's true. I'm going to show you based on the Bible how um, God blesses um, committed homosexual relationships. So that, that's what he argues in God and the Gay Christian. And what he does when he gets to Romans chapter 1 is he says that the Bible never really addresses the issue of what we would call orientation. The Bible may condemn excessive lust, but it doesn't address the issue of orientation as such. And so if we take into account all that we know about sexual orientation, we would see that the Bible doesn't speak against people who have a same-sex orientation and who choose to enter into same-sex marriage and live faithful to one another for the rest of their lives. Since the Bible doesn't rule out being a gay Christian in that sense, committed gay relationships, then neither should we. That's the argument he makes. If the Bible doesn't know about sexual orientation like we do, it's only condemning excessive lust, lust in Romans chapter 1. They just had all these passions and it was too much. They should have reined them in a little bit. <clears throat> is he right? Well, if he is, it would be a total revision of the church's consistent teaching over the last 2,000 years. And even before that um, in, 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 in Judaism. Uh, many of you have probably heard the name of uh, Brian McLaren. He was a pastor at a church in Maryland. In 2005, Brian McLaren was named one of the uh, top 25 evangelicals in the world. Tom, Time Magazine put this list together, and it was, you know, people like Rick Warren, Billy Graham, John Stott, Brian McLaren. 25 uh, people from the world. <coughs> Excuse me. Think about these mics. You have to take them off to cough. <coughs> Excuse me. Apologize for that. <coughs> so anyway, Brian McLaren is named one of the 25 leading, leading evangelicals in the world. Well, <coughs> right after that, in 2006, on the Christianity Today website, which is an evan evangelical Christian magazine, he wrote an article where he called Christians, called on Christians to, to stop speaking as if they know the truth about what the Bible says about homosexuality. And he gave two reasons for it. He said, we're not really sure what the Bible says about this, number one. Number two, it turns people off to Christianity. And if we really want to draw people into the faith, we have to stop talking about this. We have to stop speaking the truth about what the Bible says about these things. <clears throat> and so he called for evangelicals to observe a five-year moratorium on making pronouncements about the, this issue in public. Just stop talking about it for five years. Maybe talk amongst ourselves, but let's stop putting that out there in public. Nevertheless, um, so he calls for this in 2006. Supposed to be being silent for five years. Well, in 2010, still a year left on the moratorium, he writes a book called The New Kind of Christianity. And guess what he makes the case for in the book A New Kind of Christianity? The new kind of Christianity that he argues for actually blesses committed same-sex relationships. He totally flipped on the issue. And he, he basically came out as in, in this affirming position. And he, said, he argues in the book, those who refuse to come over to this position are actually fundamentalists. And they have hetero, <coughs> heterophobia or homophobia. And so he, he, just, he basically just denigrates traditional believers who hold to what the Bible has always said about these things. 
He says that evangelicals who treat homosexuality as a sin are just looking for an enemy, a scapegoat. And they're, they're just looking for somebody to hate. And so he went from saying in 2006, let's have dialogue, to evangelicals need to give up what they've always believed. Now my question is, in light of the fact that he said that evangelicals are mistreating gay people if they keep holding on to their biblical views, who is really mistreating gay people? And the reason I, I want you to think about this is because how is it harmful to sinners to hold out to them the grace of the gospel? How is it harmful to call them to repent and to be reconciled to the God who made them and who loves them? That is, in fact, what our message is. It's not just that, okay, this is a sin. That's like part one of, of the message, right? That's not the whole thing. But you can't get to the whole thing if you're not telling that part. We're not putting a stiff arm up to gay people when we speak the truth to them. We're trying to make known to them the path to life. And the path to life is a narrow way that requires us to leave all of our old ways behind, whatever those may be. And what is harmful and unloving is to tell gay people, and not, not just gay people, but any, any sinners, gay or straight, to tell them that they do not need to repent of their sin in order to come to Christ. Every time a false prophet gives that message to a sinner that they don't need to repent of sexual sin in order to come to Christ, every time that message goes out, he's leading that sinner away from Jesus, not to Jesus. That is the most unloving thing that anyone can do, is to bar the way to Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Here's the thing. If you come to Jesus but you are unwilling to turn away from your sin, you haven't come to Jesus. You can say, Lord, Lord, but if you don't do what he says, you don't know him. Jesus just put it in very stark terms. So you can call yourself a Christian, but you won't be a Christian if you practice lawlessness. And the false teachers are doing nobody any favors by telling sinners, gay or otherwise, that they can practice lawlessness and follow Jesus. There are so many preachers today who are entertaining the idea that they can reach more people for Jesus if they just give up what the Bible says about marriage and about sexuality. Some of them are just setting it aside. Some of them are just teaching the wrong thing. But they're not leading people to Jesus when they do that. They're leading people away from Jesus when they do that. And there is right now a great divide coming into the evangelical movement. And we're going to find out who's for real and who isn't. Because the heat is going to get turned up on us from the outside. And some people are going to stand and some people aren't. And we can't show up at the judgment telling God, well, it wasn't popular. I wasn't getting enough attaboys, so I gave up on what you told us about sexual sin. That's not going to stand at the judgment. And so that's why we have to speak the truth, first of all, if we're going to love our gay neighbors. We can't pretend like the Bible says something that it, that it doesn't say. So we have to speak the truth. The second thing, we've got to speak the gospel. And turning your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. I want you to look at, at verse 9. Notice Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? 
which simply means not everybody gets in. In particular, the unrighteous, which we take to be unrepentant sinners as a class, the unrighteous are excluded from God's kingdom. They don't come in. They don't experience the redemptive reign of Jesus in their lives. And when they come to the other side at the last day, they go to judgment. Okay, So the unrighteous are excluded from God's kingdom. But then look what he says next. He tells us who the unrighteous are. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this is a vice list, which means there's a lot of different kinds of sinners that are listed here. And it's very clear that every single item in this list is designating some kind of sinful behavior or, or activity. No question there. But he names among those types of sinners, uh, my translation, I'm reading the NASB, he says the effeminate nor homosexuals. Some of your translations say, are, are you guys reading the ESV? Raise your hand if you're reading the ESV. Okay. It's a Reformed fellowship. I should have, should have known that. Um, I think it says something like people who, men who practice homosexuality. It's actually two words in the Greek. Um, and the NASB says effeminate nor homosexuals, which captures the two words. But the, the first word is a word that means soft. Okay, it's translated as effeminate. It just means soft. And the other one is a word that means to a, to bed a male. There's actually no word homosexual in Greek. Um, we translate it that way in, in English, but it really means someone who beds a male, takes a male, uh, one man who takes another man to bed. So I'm going to try to be, I'm going to be polite here, but Paul's being, he's trying to, how can I say this? He's trying to, de, he's trying to describe both partners in a homosexual encounter. That's what he's trying to describe. He's, he's not being unclear here, okay? He's being very clear. So homosexuals are named among the unrighteous who are excluded. Well, look what he says in the next verse. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. Did you catch what he indicates there? Um, the unrighteous don't inherit the kingdom of God. That includes homosexuals and the effeminate. They don't, they don't inherit the kingdom of God as if they are unrepentant. But then he says, you were that. I'm looking at a bunch of people. I mean, Paul, you remember in Acts chapter 18 when he came to Corinth and founded the church in Corinth? You remember what happened there? He went to the synagogue for a little while and they kicked him out. And so he went next door to another guy's house and began preaching. And all these Gentiles started coming to faith, plus the leader of the synagogue. <laughs> um, it's like God was saying, I'll have him. <laughs> I'll take that Jew. And then a bunch of Gentiles got saved, right? So all these Gentiles, they, they weren't in a post-Christian culture. They were in a pagan culture, okay? They didn't have the imprint of Jewish morality or biblical morality in that culture. Homosexuality was very common. Very common in, in the Greco-Roman culture. And so Paul says, you, the gospel came to you and then that sexual deviancy that you experienced, that became not you anymore, but that was you. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified and justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Which means God is in the business of saving sinners. He saved you and he changed you and he forgave you of your sin. He cleansed you from your sin and he made you right before God. That's what he did for you. Verse 11 is the evidence that the gospel had taken root among sinners, pagan sinners who had all kinds of sexual brokenness in their lives. And the gospel is meant for people who have sexual brokenness in their lives. 
That's what our message is to people. We speak the truth, but we speak the gospel, knowing we're speaking to not perfect people, but to broken people. And it's the best news in the world. It offers hope, forgiveness, a promise of change and the hope of the age to come. How many of you um, have heard of Rosaria Butterfield? How many of you read her book, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert? Okay. Um, if you haven't read that book, you should go read that book. Okay. Um, Rosaria was a tenured professor at Syracuse University. She was a lesbian, and she had a longtime partner that she was living with. And she read in the newspaper about promise keepers. This was back in the 90s. And she was offended by this patriarchal organization. And so she wrote a letter to the editor of the local newspaper in Syracuse denigrating promise keepers because she was a feminist. She was a lesbian. She was the head of all the gay clubs at Syracuse University. And she wanted to speak out publicly against the Christian patriarchy. So she writes a letter in. And uh, in after she wrote the letter in, she gets mail back from readers. A lot of people hated what she wrote. She took their letters and put them in one pile on her desk. And a lot of people loved what she wrote. And she took those letters and put them in another pile on her desk. And she just was entertained by both piles. And But she got this one letter. And it was from a Presbyterian minister in town. And he was did not agree with her. But he was very polite. And... He said that he would love to speak with her more about these things. Love to meet with her. And she couldn't figure out which pile it went in. <laughs> so she threw it in the trash. But the more she got to thinking about it, the more it started like drilling a hole in her head. She couldn't get it out of her mind. So she pulled it out of the trash. And she ended up calling the guy. She calls him. And she ends up going to his house. And she strikes up a relationship with this Presbyterian minister and his wife. And she ends up being in their home like once a week having dinner and coffee and just talking about the Bible. And this goes on for like a year. And she starts just reading through, th through the Bible. And over time, it just starts landing on her heart. Um, I don't even know if she could put her finger on, on when the moment was. But it was over the year, the conversation with the, this minister and reading through the Bible, God just saved her. He just... He flat saved her. So I'm not going to spoil the book. You can go read the rest of it. I can tell you right now, she is a homeschooling mom, the wife of a pastor in South Carolina. She loves the Lord. And God just radically saved her. Now here's the thing. The reason I'm telling you that we have to learn how to speak the gospel is because, you know, you don't have to be like a scholar <laughs> on sexuality issues. You don't have to have all of your apologetics down pat and an answer to every single question to do this, which is to get to know somebody, have them in your home, become a part of their lives, and speak the gospel to them and have full confidence that God still uses the gospel powerfully to save people. And there's nobody that is beyond his reach. God specializes in the hard cases. I would not have looked at Rosaria and would have thought, oh yeah, she's ripe for the picking. I just wouldn't have thought that, okay. I would have thought, oh, enemy of the faith. This guy says, come and let us be a part of your life. You know what, and there's no program. It was just the ordinary ministry of the gospel. Making a friend and speaking the gospel and hanging in there with them. So we have to learn how to speak the gospel into people's lives. And we have to not be surprised by the brokenness in front of us or so put off by it or so put off by culture wars that we don't get into people's lives. We have to get over that. We have to, we have to be the tip of the spear here if we want to see change in people's lives. And it means we have to speak the gospel into people's lives. Speak the truth, speak the gospel, speak humility. And by that, I mean speak with humility. Um, everybody turn over to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, 
Paul says something really interesting. He says, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. Then he tells us who the lawless and rebellious people are. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals. That word homosexuals is the same word that you found in 1 Corinthians 6. Homosexuals, those who men who bed other males, and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. Now, he includes, again, homosexuality and another long list of sinners, and it's a pretty bad lot. They're lawless, rebellious, ungodly, unholy, profane, some in there who kill their fathers and mothers, kidnappers, murderers. There's no moral ambiguity about the status of homosexuality in Paul's mind. But even so, look what he says in verse 15. After listing all that, he says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. And yet... For this reason, I found mercy in order that in me, in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect, perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. When I say speak humility, I want you to speak like Paul's speaking. He's speaking with humility. When Paul call, calls homosexuality sin, which he clearly does here, when he does that, he still thinks of himself as the biggest sinner in the world. It doesn't really matter who's the biggest sinner in the world. What Paul is showing us is that you just ought to feel like you're the biggest sinner in the world. In other words, your sin, ought to, it ought to be the biggest deal in the world to you that God saved you from your sin. Your sin ought to smell the most odious to you than anybody else's. Not that nobody other sin doesn't offend us. But you ought to be constantly staggered that God saved you. That's how Paul was. We don't speak to gay people as if we are without sin. We speak as sinners to sinners, which means we speak with compassion, even if we don't share the same struggles that they do. We're often presented with a false choice concerning the church's ministry to gay people. We're told that we can either walk the path of homophobia and hatred or we have to surrender our ancient beliefs to affirm homosexual practice. But that's an unnecessary dilemma. There is another Way We can love and minister to broken sinners, including gay ones, while still holding fast to biblical norms for human sexuality. And it's incumbent upon us to do this with faithfulness. We have to speak the truth, speak the gospel, and speak with humility. Now here's the thing. The world is going to stand against you as you try to do this. You're going to speak the truth in love means you're going to speak the truth and you're going to love the people you're speaking the truth to. You're going to try to find opportunities to communicate the gospel. You're going to try to be humble. You're going to try to be in people's lives. The world is going to stand against you as you try to do that, no matter how loving you try to be. They're not going to let you love the sin or hate the sin, as it were. In fact, they're going to insist that you never even say that phrase. But we're still called to do it anyway, aren't we? God has called us to this faithfulness. And if we fail this, then we've failed in discipleship, what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus. And we can't cave in at the point that the culture just happens to be pushing, you know, giving us opposition. We can't fail there. All right, I have so much more to say, but we need to take a pause. Let me pray, and uh, we're going to have a little break. Father, I do pray. You would use this word to change us and transform us into your image. I pray you'd help us to speak the truth, speak the gospel, and speak with humility to all sinners that you bring into our lives. But even those that are um, dealing with the difficult sexuality issues. Lord, I pray you'd help us. Give us grace. I pray you give grace to the folks in this room who have people in their lives right now they are thinking about and they feel like this is a mountain too high to climb. Lord, I pray you'd encourage them. Give them boldness. 
and give them patience and fill their hearts with love. So Lord, we pray that you would help us in these ways and more. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Dr. Burke. Now that we are one session in, I want to draw your attention to the schedule tomorrow afternoon. There is a Q&A time we're going to be having uh, in this room. So as questions are already beginning to come up for you, as, as we're hearing from Dr. Burke, write those down uh, so that you remember them for our time tomorrow. Uh, but we're going to take a, about a 10-minute break. It's, I believe, 7.40 right now. We can try to be back in here by 7.50, and we'll uh, continue with the second session. Thank you.